Open your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 4. I want to begin by reading a few verses here before we get into the subject, which, by the way, is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. And if you've been following along, you see how this fits with everything that we've been talking about. And uh, hopefully, that if, if, if you haven't been following along, maybe you can... Uh, get on YouTube and catch up with the messages, and uh, and we're not near through yet. We've got a long ways to go in this journey. Verse number 11, chapter 4, is where we begin this morning. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now notice the next verse. This is the reason. For the perfecting of the saints... Every phrase here is so important, I want you to hang on it. These apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the pastors, the teachers were gifts from God given to the church for the perfecting, the bringing to maturity of the saints. But notice, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, verse 13, till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning and craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. When I read that, it reminds me of my most helpful verse, my most greatest determination, and where Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. For to me, it might be something different for somebody else. He's speaking for himself. For to me, Paul said, to live is Christ. And that's exactly the way each and every one of us ought to feel in regards to our lives, which is a gift from God. And every time I think of that verse, another verse comes to mind. In chapter number 2 and verse 8, where he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. And, and, in other words, what we do comes as a result of what we think. And he's telling us, let this mind be in you, which was in, in Christ. So this morning, I want you to think about this matter of being Christ-like. Of, of all of my mother's earthly possessions, there was one thing that she valued above everything else. Now, I'm talking about possessions now, not people. But it was, a, it was a picture that was of Jesus sitting out on the hillside. And I'm guessing that it was at least five foot long, maybe six, and 24 to 30 inches high, something like that. I don't remember a day in my lifetime, but what that picture wasn't hanging in the living room of wherever we lived, wherever she went, it went, and it was a permanent fixture there. Her mother had won that 
picture of, of, of the Lord by bringing the most guests to a revival meeting. I had just been born, by the way. I was still a baby in my mother's arms. I, I don't even remember ever seeing Grandma. She lived until I was, uh, I'm guessing, three or four years old, but I can't remember seeing her. But, but uh, whenever she found out that she was going to give a gift out for whoever brought the most people, was she encouraged uh, my mother to bring your baby and come on. Well, it so happened, I guess, I guess I helped her win that picture, you know, I don't know, but she won that picture, and, and it was so meaningful to her that whenever she died, when she died, we couldn't find that picture anywhere. It was gone, and Sis and I talked about it, and we are convinced that she knew, or she thought, felt like, that when she died, that it was going to be so meaningful to us, and especially me being a preacher, that she was afraid we was going to argue about who gets that picture. So she just did something with it so nobody could get it. That there wouldn't be an argument, you see. Well, she should have known that the picture didn't mean, wasn't any value to me whatsoever because I'm not into pictures of Jesus to start with. But everybody doesn't feel like I do about that. Down through the centuries, there have been many pictures that have been painted, supposedly, of Jesus. The, the most uh, famous of all is the Lord's Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. You know, that is the most famous, they say. But it's not the most valuable painting of Christ. There was another one called Salvador Mundi, and that sold at Christie's. And th this was in 2017. And it sold for $450.3 million. Can you, $450 million for a picture of somebody that you think looks like Jesus and you don't have a clue what he really looked like, you see. So there's a lot of people that put a lot of stock in what, you know, they think that Jesus looked like, but I can't help but ask this question. Have you ever wondered what he looked like? Probably you have, right? I was hosting a preaching conference several years ago, and we had a building full of preachers, and this one guy got up there to preach, and I knew him a little bit. I never dreamed he'd do something like this, but he was of the persuasion that Jesus you know, had the long flowing hair and all of that. And so he got preaching out of the hundred preachers that was there or whatever. He was the only one that believed that. And he kept on. Finally, I interrupted him and I said, brother, you made your point. Would you move on? We, we don't agree with that. And he just kept on. He just totally ignored me. And for the only time in my life, I got up, walked up to the pulpit, said, sit down, brother, you're through. And so that ended his free. He, could, he couldn't believe it. But, but people have strong feelings about what Jesus looked like. And the fact is, nobody knows exactly what he looked like. If we're going to stay strictly with the Bible, don't you think that's what we ought to do? Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2 says, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's a picture of ordinary. 
that there's no beauty, nothing that we should desire. There's nothing that make him stand out in the crowd. What we do know about Jesus is the fact that he was a Jew. So it's likely, you know, that he had dark skin, dark hair, dark eyes, and so forth. And, and we could just go on and on gathering ideas about what Jesus looked like. But we still wouldn't really know and it really doesn't even matter what he looked like. The fact of the matter is I'm not even talking about physical appearance. It, the message has nothing to do with what Jesus looked like. The message has to do is with what is Christ-like. What is Christ-like? You know, we sing, that, we sing that song that we all love to sing, to be like Jesus. Right? And, and that ought to be the desire of our heart. And we even talk about being Christ-like. Maybe it's in reference to someone else, you know. Well, that's the most Christ-like man or woman that I've ever known in my life. And we speak about wanting others to see Jesus in and through us. But what does Christ-like look like? How do you know whether or not we're like Jesus? How, how, how do you know? There's got to be some criteria, some standard by which we, we can honestly say that person is Christ-like. But before I go on, I want you to understand this is a crucial matter. You know, to some folks, it's not any big deal. You know, they just live their life the way they want to live it. And they don't care what anybody else thinks about it. But this matter is crucial because how we are perceived by other people is of great importance. And sadly, a lot of times, others don't see in us what they should see in us. And when we talk about being Christ-like, there are all kinds of different ideas. For, for some people, it's about living according to some certain moral standard. I can take you to places where, and I don't know whether they're around here or not, but I can take you to places that the whole thing about being Christ-like for a woman is her dress got to drag her ground and her, her hair can't ever be cut and she can't use any makeup. That's what Christ-like is to them. For others, it's all about certain religious rituals that they go through. And they take some tradition that's been handed down from generation and, you know, they... They like it, and so they incorporate it into our worship services, and, and that becomes such a rigid standard. They think that you can't be Christ-like unless you live up to that ritual. To others, it's about, you know, dressing according to these certain standards, following tradition. Maybe it's about doing good works. Maybe it's about giving generously, and that list can go on and on and on, but the problem is, you can do all of those things and still be nothing like Jesus. Amen. And it's easy to find a lot of examples of that today. Go right down that list and on everything that I just mentioned, you can find an example of that from people that have never received Christ as their Savior and they couldn't, they couldn't tell you how to get to heaven if their life depended upon it, you see. But they do certain things because it makes them feel, you know, like it makes them feel better about themselves. It makes them feel like it, that you'll think more highly of them, that you'll be pleased with them, that they'll gain a reputation for being a Christian. But in the strictest sense, they're nothing at all like Jesus and have no idea what it means to be Christ-like. So what does it mean to be Christ-like? 
Does, does it mean wearing a cross? Probably, and I'm not opposed to this. I have a lapel pin, not this one, but I have a lapel pin that's been in our family for a long time uh, of a cross. I, I have no problem with that unless you worship that, that ornament, by the way. But for some people, that, that's what it means to identify as a Christian. You've got to wear a cross around your neck or somewhere. For others, it might be you've got to carry a cross. I mean, we've seen people do this. I've seen them roll them down the street. I've seen them put them on their shoulder, and they think that's, that's being like Jesus. I'm going to carry this cross. Believe it or not, there's at least one fellow that believed that to be like Jesus, you had to let them nail you to the cross, and they did. They literally nailed him to the cross, and he thought this is what being like Jesus is all about. For somebody else, being like Jesus means being able to foresee into the future and foretell the future. For somebody else, it might mean the, the ability to work miracles or, or, or to, to live without sin. And, and you take, you take any, this to any extreme that you want to, but you always come up short because there's no way that we can ever literally show Christ to others. And so is there no way? Is there no way that we can that we can show Christ to others that that by looking at us that they can tell something about him? You know when Jesus came into the world over in Hebrews I wish I had time to read all of the verses but whenever the son of God became the son of man and came to earth what 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 was that all about? Well, you you can comment on a lot of things, but one thing was Remember what Jesus said? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. If you want to see the Father, you have to look at Jesus. And when he came to earth, he was showing us what God is like. And now as Christians, as followers of Christ, we have received the call, the command, and the challenge of being Christ-like. So what do we need to do? Where do we find the list? We go through here looking for the characteristics of a Christian. And, you know, we can, we can do that in a lot of ways. You know, the, the Bible teaches that to be Christ-like, you do what Jesus did according to the Father's will for the Father's glory and out of love with prayer for the good of others. And you do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I could just sum it all up with those words. Say that's what it means right there. I could sum it up by saying, if you want to know what being Christ-like is, look at the fruit of the Spirit, those nine things mentioned there in the book of Galatians in chapter 5, where he gives those nine different graces. And each one of those depicts the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of them is a characteristic of him. And so we could use that as our list, or we could use a list that Peter wrote about. Or we could just maybe sum it all up into one word, love. And that's what I literally started to do for this message because when we think about love, literally, that's what all of these things involves. But instead of doing that, I want you this morning to think about being Christ-like using these standards. Listen carefully. 
I'm talking about things that Jesus did that he commanded us to do. We can, we can spend hour after hour talking about all the things that Jesus did and get a list that long and still wouldn't know half of it, right? We can look at all these things that Jesus did, but I'm talking about things that Jesus did that he commanded us to do. And whenever we get that list, we will know what it means to be Christ-like. Fair enough? All right. Look in Philippians chapter 2. I mentioned this verse just a while ago, being one of my favorite sections of Scripture, and I say that because it is so very important. Look at chapter 2, verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we know what being Christ-like is like by his attitude towards self. He's God. He's the one that created the heavens and the earth. He was the creator. But not just the creator. He's the one that is literally to this very moment and throughout history the one controlling everything. He keeps the stars there in their orbit. I mean, he's controlling it all. He's the one that knows everything. And he voluntarily laid all of that aside and became a man. He took upon himself our humanity. The Son of God became the Son of Man that the sons of man might become the sons of God. That's what it's all about. And because of that, we ought to have, as Paul said, the mind of Christ. I've spent hours, an entire series on those few verses that I just read. There is so much there. But I mention it this morning to simply remind you that what is here is of great importance because if we're ever going to reflect Christ to others, we have to have the mind of Christ. And notice, he's using the incarnation as a demonstration of what our attitude should be. And that's what it takes to be like Christ. He humbled himself. He did not look upon himself or present himself as somebody that was superior to anyone else. For those first 30 years on earth, he walked the streets. Nobody ever saw anything unusual about him. He was just ordinary. And he didn't try to flaunt anything. He could have gone in the entertaining business had he wanted to. Great crowds followed him when finally he started his ministry and he began to work miracles and they began to follow him from place to place. They wanted a show, not a savior. They wasn't concerned about that. Just perform for us, put on a show for us. Boy, I'll tell you, some preachers would have latched onto that in a hurry and said, how much does it pay? You know that's true. 
But everything Jesus did was for us, not for himself. And to be like Jesus, that's the attitude we've got to have toward one another. That's why the Bible says, think not more highly of yourself than you ought to. We ought to always view the other person as being equal as it were to us, even though behavior might be off the charts. There's a reason for that, and we need to take that into consideration. But as far as who we are, we need to take our proper position in life, and that's in humility. Then in John chapter number 13, this is one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, I'm sure. We see Jesus now. He's in the upper room. He has his followers there. He's about to be taken and crucified and give his life for us. And there in the upper room, I want you to notice chapter 13 and verse number 14. And remember, they've come into the room. They're all in a rush to get, you know, down to eating probably is on some of them's mind. And Jesus took a towel and a basin of water and he went around and he washed the dirty, stinking feet of the disciples. That should have been their job. But notice verse 14, he says, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Now listen carefully. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now I realize there are some, and if, if they want to do it, that's fine. But some have literally made a church ordinance out of foot washing. And that was not the intention of it. There are only two ordinances, and that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is not an ordinance it's a principle that he's laying down here just as I have been willing to serve you. You see, his attitude towards self is where it begins, but that leads to his attitude about service. That he's willing to serve, even in the lowest form, because normally that was the job of the servant. Somebody would come into, you know, to someone else's home and, They'd call the servant in, and here, here we have our guests wash their feet. Instead of Jesus expecting somebody to do that for them, he did it for them. I remember my pastor stressing the fact how we need to be willing to be used to the Lord in whatever way we can. And I'll never forget every time, and uh, he did, did what a lot of us preachers do, and that's repeat ourselves. And we do that for two reasons. Number one, we're absent-minded. Number two, we all know that you're not going to get it the first time. But, but he'd get his hanky out. I can see him now. He'd talk about no job is ought to be considered too small. He said, if God called me to be a knothole polisher in the church, he'd run over there and we had old time paneling on the walls that everybody hates today and he'd get that hanky out he said and he'd start polishing a knot hole he said i'd be the best knot hole polisher for for jesus that i could possibly be that's a good attitude for us to have because 
when we think about our service for the Lord, we should never consider anything as being too menial for us to do. Like, well, that is beneath us. If, you know, if I can't be a deacon or I can't hold an office or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not interested. Thank God for those that serve in the nursery changing diapers and those that do things that never get noticed. That's all, listen, that's, that's what service is all about. Thank God for those who do things for people that never get announced from this pulpit. It's never known. They don't go around talking about it. There are, there are people right here, and I can look out and start calling names that I know of things that they've done to be of great help to other people. And you don't know anything about it. You think they just drag in here every week and sit down on the stool to do nothing and lean back, you know, and take it easy. And you don't think they're doing anything for the, for the Lord. And they're serving the Lord because they're willing. That's what being Christ-like is. I, I was so proud the other night. Brother Kenneth sent me a, a text, and, and, and along with a picture, by the way, of our workers over at the villas. That's the retirement village that we've been ministering to now for, I've lost track, 20 years, I guess, something like that, 22 years now that, that we've, we've been involved in that ministry. Our musicians, all, all of you involved in the music stand up. These guys right here took care of, the, uh, amen, isn't that great? Willing to go serve. All of you that were there and, you know, helping and supporting that ministry, all of you stand up. Now, wait a minute. There were some young people there. The what? Oh, that family is ill this morning. All right. Uh, but all of them were young people. I, and I thought, praise God. And I sent a text back to Brother Kenneth. It simply said, that's what it means in teaching people to serve. Whenever we think about Sunday school and Awana and all of our ministries where we're involved in teaching people, listen, we, if we succeed in getting them to be able to quote every verse in the Bible, if we succeed in making them a great Bible scholar, well, boy, they can talk about the deep things of God. They know who the Antichrist is. They know what the mark of the beast is. They got all of this knowledge, you know. If they're not doing something for Jesus, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. We need people like Jesus, people that'll go into the rest homes and the nursing homes and the hospitals and the, and, and, and the, the prisons and jails and, and people that, that are in some way ministering. To, by the way, you don't have to go to any of those places to find somebody to serve. There are people right here, right now, this morning that need help. Need help. Our, our widows and different ones that need help. It's always, you can always find somebody to serve if you have the mind of Christ. And that's what being like Jesus is all about. We're nothing like Jesus if we're not serving somebody. And we're nothing like Jesus if we don't have that attitude towards self that is willing to take the lowest seat in the assembly. Now look back at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. 
And again, these verses are so very important where Paul says, Be ye therefore followers of God, notice, as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. We see what it means to be Christ-like by his attitude and by his service, but here we see what it means by his attitude towards sinners. His attitude towards sinners. Notice that he loved us and hath given himself for us. He presented himself as a sacrifice to God. There can't be any doubt about the greatness of Christ and his love for sinners because he proved it, right? You can't doubt that. Right there is the evidence, the fact that history bears out the fact that he was crucified. Even the enemies of the cross admit to that. Wicked hands took him and nailed him to the cross. They crucified him. He's proving his love for humanity. Listen to me. There shouldn't be any doubt as to our love for others, our love for those that are sinners. That's what it means to be Christ-like, having the right attitude about yourself, being willing to serve, and also being concerned enough about sinners to give of yourself to help meet their needs. But then Peter writes about a different aspect of Christ and his attitude in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the forward. And then verse 21 he says, For even hereunto were ye called. You ought to underline that word called. This is a calling from God, and here's why. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Can you imagine that? You know, whenever, whenever Paul speaks about suffering, I don't know anybody ever suffered any more than Paul did. And he tells us it is given unto us to suffer on his behalf. And, and you, you read that and you think, What? He's talking about a gift. He's talking about something that God has given us. It's given unto you to suffer on his behalf. And suffering is a part of the Christian life because without it we would never develop any likeness to Christ. We'd be so busy doing our own thing we wouldn't have any concern about Christ. Do you know that every chapter in 1 Peter, every one of them, says something about the suffering of Christ? And if we're going to do what he did, there are going to be times that we have to have the right attitude about suffering. Here in America, we've been so greatly blessed, you know. We haven't been persecuted like other Christians in the past or in some parts of the world today. We don't know what that's like. Mark it down. Things are changing and it's going to get worse. And a month or so down the road, I'm going to be talking about that. Things are changing. The Bible says that, you know, any man live godly in Christ Jesus, he shall suffer persecution. And oh, how we resent that. To think that there's somebody that is going to 
persecute us, somebody's going to say bad things about us, somebody that's going to ignore us, or in some way that they're not going to treat us as we want to be treated, all because we are a Christian. And that's hard to deal with, right? And yet the Bible tells us here that that we're never dismissed from our duty to be like Jesus when suffering comes. His example ought to be followed regardless of the circumstances. So to be like Jesus, that simply means that there are going to be times in suffering that everything within us is crying out with resentment. We want to get back at that person. We want to turn the tables on them. We want to get even with them. That's not what Jesus ever did. He just suffered. Because he knew that through his suffering it would bring about what God wanted to accomplish. And that brings us down to the fifth thing that he did that he tells us to do. And that's sacrifice. You know it's one thing to serve. It's another thing to sacrifice. Over in John chapter 17 and verse 18 he says, As thou hast sent me. Now this is the high priestly prayer. He's in the upper room. And he's talking here to the Father, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. There again, that's a a reference to the incarnation, just as Jesus left glory, left the praise of all of the angelic hosts, just as he left the golden streets in heaven or whatever, We might picture he came down to walk the dusty trails of Galilee to be hated and despised and mocked and nailed to a cross. That's what the incarnation meant. The Son of God becoming the Son of Man that the sons of man might become the sons of God. That's what it was about. And he said, Father, just like you sent me down here, I'm sending them into the world. And then chapter 20, verse 21. Then said Jesus to them again. Don't ever get mad at the preacher for harping about things and repeating it. Look, he said to them again. We need to hear more than one time. Here's what he said. Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. This makes reference to his mission and our mission. Now don't make the mistake of thinking that this is John's version of the Great Commission. We all know the Great Commission, of course. Matthew writes about it. It's Mark, Luke. We know what is going to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, so forth. We know what that, but this, that's not what this is. That's not where the emphasis is here. He sends them in, into the world here but and this is this is crucial that we get this this is not just his version John's version of what's going on it is an instruction as to their mission in the world in other words in that we are to resemble Christ 
as God himself took upon him the form of man, and what did he do? He entered into our world, and it's like the Lord saying, I'm sending them out there to enter the world of other people. Enter into their world, to live among them. In fact, he said, I'm going to send them out there as sheep in the midst of the wolves. That's just backward from what we normally think about it, but sheep in the midst of the wolves. Why would Jesus subject his servants, his people, to such great suffering? Why? Because it's all a part of God's mission to redeem fallen man. And it's as though the Lord's saying, I've done my part. And now I'm sending you out there into the world. And that becomes your mission to enter into the world of other people. I said earlier that I started to sum all of this up with just saying the one thing it takes to be like Jesus is love. And that would be the short version. But let me tell you, if we really love people, everything I've mentioned, all five of these things, all five of them will reflect the likeness of Christ in our life. And if they're not there, there's something seriously wrong. So what does it, what does it really mean? Because we talk a lot about loving others. You often say that we do, right? I, I don't know anybody here that would... Stand up and say, there's just some people in there I just can't stand. In fact, I just hate them. I, just, I don't care anything about them at all. We'd all like, you know, if I asked, how many of you love your church? And I mean everybody in the church. Everybody raised their hand. You, know, you see, we tend to talk a lot about love because we know we ought to. We know we're, we're Christians. We know we ought to. So we're going to talk about how much we love other people. But the question is, do we really? That's the question. I'm not talking about just loving your family and loving your friends and even loving the, the church members that you might love dearly. I'm talking about those that Jesus talked about when he's told us to love our neighbors and to love what? Our enemies. Those are the ones that's on the bottom of the list of the people that we care about. And he says, we are to love them even if they're unlovely. Amen. Do you love them? And before you answer, let me ask you some questions. How do you feel about the person that has offended you in some way? Do, do you realize that even happens within, within church membership? Oh, yeah. you know, Brother Kenneth knows, and I know, been around very long, you know. It's going to happen. It's just liable, but you can look around and it just might be you can see somebody that maybe it's a thing of the past and it's over now, but somebody that really offended you in some way, or you might be the guilty party. But how do you feel about the person that offended you, or how do you feel about the person that supports the political party that you are opposed to? How do you feel about them? Don't want to talk about it, do you? Just move on, preacher. Let's don't, let's don't, don't get on that. How do you feel about uh, those that are addicted to drugs? 
see them out there walking the streets or the alcoholic that's out there trying to bum a little money to buy another drink. How, how do you feel about them? How do you feel about those that are incarcerated? Oh, we can reason it away saying, well, they are such a danger to society. That, that's exactly where they need to be. And that might be right, but that's not the question. The question is, do you love them? Oh, yeah, you say, I love them. What have you ever done to help someone in that position? How do you feel about those that are covered with tats? Or I, I've got to tell you, I can't get used to seeing all of the tattoos. But it doesn't bother me a bit. If you want to make your body a billboard, go for it. I, I don't understand it. I'm, uh, you know, I, but how, how do you feel about people like that? Or how do you feel about the guys wearing earrings? How about that one? Still love them? How about, hang with me, I'm not through. <laughs> how about the girl or, or the woman that's dressed inappropriately? How do you feel about them? I've told you about the place up there in Kentucky where literally they've got, they've got covers they keep back there stacked up nice and neat. And a woman or a girl come in and their dress is too short, they, they go over and cover them up. Boy, that, doesn't that show a lot of love? What, what about when they come in, you know, and they've got that plunging neckline? And let's face it, Let's face it, sometimes they really enjoy showing what they've got. Are you with me? How do you feel about them? Are they really worth your time and your effort? When you think about what they're doing, and, and the, the lack of respect that they have for themselves. And then right behind them walks in somebody that we, you know is gay. Oh, we can all take the Bible and prove that's wrong. Of course we can. Just like I can take the same Bible and I can talk about the gossip that's sinned. That whole list of other sins that we Baptists don't want to talk about. Some of those sins that some of you have been guilty of this week. You just slough it off like that's no big deal. But boy, you let somebody come in that's gay. All of a sudden, I mean, you're you're just on edge. You say, preacher, don't 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 you don't you care? Yeah, yeah, I do care. That's why I don't care if, if they come. Doesn't bother me. They need the word of God. They don't need a lecture for me about the dress and what have you until they trust Christ as their Savior and the Holy Spirit convicts them they're not going to change anything and we're not going to be able to help them holding them out here at arm's length. You say, yeah, but that woman, she was 
she was just so skimpily dressed. And I, I even saw my husband one time cut his eyes over at her, and he's probably lusting after her, and you know. Well, maybe your husband ought to grow a little bit of self-discipline to where he doesn't allow himself to do that. You know, always want, we always want to blame the other person, don't we? Don't let people like that bother you. If you have to come to church and sit with your eyes closed and listen, that's better than getting, getting all bent out of shape because somebody else isn't living up to a certain standard. I read my Bible right. It tells me Jesus was a friend of sinners. Amen. He was a friend of sinners. He loved them enough that he died for them. You see, love is always active, and we, uh, there's a Gaither song that talks about loving God, loving each other. Great song. It ought to be that way. We ought to love God. We ought to love each other. But there's so many times that what we say that we believe doesn't translate into proper behavior for a Christian. We look at those people and we know if I'm going to be like Jesus, I've got to love them enough that I've got to be willing to even sacrifice for them. I've got to love people enough that I'm willing to serve the Lord. And if we had stopped and think that about the fact that people are like they are for a reason, you don't need to know the reason. There are people like they are because they were molested when they were young. You don't know anything about that. All you want to do is criticize them for not being a spiritual-minded Christian. There are other people that have been abused in various ways and people that have suffered. And People are like they are for a reason, just like you and me. We were born into this world with a sinful nature. And that's why we sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's in our very nature to sin. And it's not until we receive Christ as our Savior that there's a change in our nature. And a part of that change is what? Love. That if we love God, we'll also love one another. Look, folks, here, let me wrap it all up. Until we actually love others, and by others I'm talking about all of those that I've mentioned and many I didn't. Until we get to that place that we actually love others, we have near a zero chance of ever winning them to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we talk about all the immorality that's all around us, how rotten our nation is and it's falling apart, blah, blah, blah. But then we never do the one thing that would help it to change. All we want to do is blabber about how awful it is. And the only thing that will ever help it change is what? For people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Because the only way any nation can ever change is one person at a time. Every Christian ought to be committed to.
to being Christ-like. Listen, because it can make the difference between heaven and hell for somebody. Think about that. You can be the tool that God uses. You can be the means whereby they get the message of salvation. It sure made a difference for a fellow by the name of Henry Stanley. You say, well, who is that? Well, he's a fellow that was sent by, the, by his newspaper over to get a story on David Livingston, the famous missionary in Africa. Three years, nobody's heard from him. They're thinking that he's been killed or he's died or whatever. So they send Stanley over there, and he goes over and starts a search. And finally, by the grace of God, he finds Livingston. I wish I had time to tell the whole story. But this is what he said, and I'm going to read it because I want to get it verbatim. For four months and four days, I lived with him in the same hut. And you got to remember, Livingston has made this commitment to serve God over there to win people to Christ. His wife has died, and that did not deter him. He buried her and went right on with the work. And now here is Stanley. Going to get a story for the folks back home, make some big bucks. For four months and four days, I lived with him in the same hut or the same boat or the same tent, and I never found a fault in him. I went to Africa as prejudiced against religion as the worst infidel in London. To a reporter like myself who had only to deal with wars and mass meetings and political gatherings and sentimentality matters were quite out of my province. But there came to me a lifelong, a long time reflection. I was out there away from the worldly world, and I saw this solitary old man there. And I asked myself, why does he stop here? What is it that inspires him? For months after we met, I found myself listening to him, wondering at the old man carrying out the words, leave all and follow me. But little by little, seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how he went quietly about his business, I was converted by him, although he had not tried to do it. Boy, Livingston could have backed him in a corner and said, let me tell you something, son. What you need is Jesus, and he could have read him the riot act and made his life miserable. Instead, Livingston just went about doing what God called him to do, and that's winning those people over there in Africa to Jesus. And Stanley would sit there and listen to that and listen to that. And without any effort, Whatsoever, the Holy Spirit used that to convict Stanley, and he was saved. Let me tell you, somebody's watching you. You might not know it. They might not ever tell you. And what they see in you matters. It could mean the difference between heaven and hell for somebody. God's purpose, God's plan for us 
the, the, what God's doing right now is in the process of sanctifying us, making us more and more like Jesus. And, and you'll find out why that's important if you don't already know in the next couple of weeks, especially two weeks. I want to preach about training for reigning. And believe me, what you're going through and what God wants you to do now matters even after you're dead and gone. I would hope this morning that you will aspire indeed that whatever the cost, as uh, Livingston said to the Lord, Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties, save the tie that binds me to thy heart. My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again dedicate my whole self to thee. I would hope that would be the attitude of each and every one of us here. Lord, I remember when I surrendered to preach, I don't know why I said California, except I've never liked California. I said, Lord, if that's what you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. I'll go anywhere, even California, if that's what. I was a hillbilly from the Ozarks. Man, I wasn't I never wanted to leave the Ozarks. But boy, I'll tell you, whenever you get serious about serving God, you'll, you'll do whatever. And more than a few times I felt guilty about Telling Bev and telling my kids, well, let's go get a moving van. Kids, you're going to leave your grandma and grandpa. We're going to go to Tennessee. Two years later, honey, I'm sorry, I don't know how we're going to tell the kids. I'm convinced God wants wants us to move to Cincinnati church up there and then 34 years ago again after 10 years in Cincinnati uh, to break the news to your wife and your family and I say break the news Bev was all a part of this from the get go she knew what was going on but it doesn't make it easy we made a lot of friends there. And family, we moved away from family. And I'm not saying that to set me up as some kind of a great example to follow. I don't, I, I don't want to be your example. I, I, want, I want Jesus to be your example. And I'm telling you, if we want others to see anything of Christ in us, they're going to have to see a willingness on our part to serve and to sacrifice and a willingness to love others. Jesus loved them enough to die for them. We ought to love them enough to live for them. If you've got kids, listen to me. If you've got your friends at school or wherever, they're not anything at all like you. They don't go to church. They don't dress right. They they smoke a little pot now and then. They do this and that. Bring them to church. Tell them they're welcome here. You got somebody and they're, they're gay and they're proud of it. They want everybody to know it. You tell them to come on down to Lakeway. We, 
You see, so many times we get things, well, preach sounds to me like you're compromised. I'm not compromising anything. I'm as much against sin of any kind as I've ever been. But we don't stand a chance of winning people if we don't love them. And if we love Jesus like we say we do, they'll know we love them. Father, 